0: Hello, and welcome to the arbitration station.
1: Is that the main issue of ISDS today?
2: So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode.
0: You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either pregnant or you're not. <laughs>
1: Did you say Gayard?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. With a D. I should not pronounce the D.
2: I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck
0: tomorrow, actually.
1: <laughs> it's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs>
2: Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kotick.
1: And I'm Sadia Bhatti.
2: I'm Joel Dahlquist. And we are your co-hosts for yet another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world and 1% holiday cheer from inside your bedroom
1: <laughs> happy holidays
2: happy holidays oh and merry christmas
1: tier four
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be tier five tomorrow and tier 20 by june
1: and maybe we're gonna to get to tier 19 at some point <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly <laughs> where in the world are you sadia
1: I uh, happily escaped this craziness um, just a couple of days ago. So I am in France uh, in a little village close to Paris called Gouvieux, just close to Chantilly. So I'm here for a couple of weeks. That's where I'm recording from today. Amazing. What about you guys?
0: (laughs) I am in tier four and locked (laughs) down London. And so I assume is Brian Kotick as well.
2: Yes, here we are. Here we find ourselves again, the same four walls. (laughs) (laughs) but I feel like we're getting better at it. It's like, you know, we're, we're just like pets. Just keep putting me back in my box and I'll.
0: I'll (laughs) Yeah. And we, we'll we'll get back to this during the happy fun holiday time when we're talking about gifts, because I have a feeling our proposed gifts that we will uh, talk about are mainly book themed or related or literature of some kind because we're we need reading and we need things to occupy ourselves with yes stay at
1: home gifts yeah stay at home gifts exactly yeah but come on cheer up guys we've got a vaccine things are looking up (laughs) you're right 2021 is around the corner you know a lot of
2: podcast
1: exactly a lot of exciting stuff is happening in the field even uh despite the lockdown you guys have been busy what do you guys do last time
2: (laughs) We interviewed Kai Hobert finally, so this is a perfect end for this uh, half of the season, so we'll take a break for the holidays, but um, we finally got Kai down and we asked him some questions. Um, We were a bit reticent to do so, but we thought this was the perfect uh, context in which to interview him. Um, since it had to do with the relationships between Russia and Sweden, and it was part of a, a bigger conference that uh, was just not about the, our interview um, specifically. So that is the first and only substantive segment uh, that we have
0: today. Which is, we'll so it's, it's taken straight from the um, Swedish law day, right? That's what we exactly. Yeah,
1: I was going to ask, what is it? Is it like the Swedish? Law Day? is that what it's called?
0: Yeah, it's it's basically, it's an annual celebration of the Swedish-Russian arbitration connection. And it's, it features generally a bunch of both Swedish and Russian arbitration lawyers talking about like issues that affect the two cultures, because there's a lot of connections, obviously, and, and the SEC is, is heavily involved in this. And Kai has been sort of in the center of the Sweden-Russia arbitration trade for for decades. Honestly, I'm not even sure he knows this is going to be aired on the podcast. I think he only showed up at the conference. And that's how we managed to get him on the podcast without (laughs) telling him that it's on the podcast as well. (laughs) Because it it was recorded. It was live and then recorded and we are using the recorded audio. That's
1: amazing. I'm sure that that's going to be great. And it's it's uh, I think by itself it's a it could be just the podcast in itself could be just about that interview. So that's great.
2: yeah it was fun uh we asked some tough questions so
0: finally got to do that but there's more as well on this we're, we're doing as i already gave away the the holiday tradition of trying to come up with gifts for boring arbitration lawyers arbitration related <laughs> or not i don't really know what you guys are going to talk about i think i might actually uh leave the arbitration field a little bit in my Lame suggestions. Are you going
1: to suggest the cap that you're wearing right now? Because we have a wonderful video of uh, of Joel right now.
0: All in different versions of pajamas, and I'm wearing a baseball (laughs) hat.
1: (laughs) (laughs) just like a baseball player no brian looks he's not in pajamas Brian's always crisp and always no, well. no, no, no. you you have to shine on your face as if you're in california I, or something. I
2: yeah i'm facing this window has perfect lighting in the morning so all my i put all my calls in the morning but in the afternoon i look like some like golem that's just like come out <laughs> from a cave so you're hitting me just at the good good times
1: <laughs> good times good times
2: and it
0: happens to be sunny in london for once I know.
1: Yeah. And yeah, that's we'll good. We'll see what happens in an
2: hour.
0: Before we jump into the, the Kai stuff and the happy fun time, uh, I, did you guys see the, um, the challenge that Spain, I have to be more specific because Spain is now challenging. <laughs> yeah, orbitant, I was going to say and the no challenge. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which challenge are you referring to?
0: I am referring to a, a failed challenge against the entire tribunal in an exit case uh, that Spain launched under the... Well, Spain didn't launch the arbitration, obviously, the respondents, I think it's Landesbank, Baden-Württemberg, and some other banks, German banks, one of the many ECT cases against Spain and Spain, as happens every now and then, and as we have talked about, they generally challenge both arbitrators and, and awards. In this particular case, they challenged the entire tribunal on two grounds, I think. One uh, is the most obvious one, and that's over the, the right to a physical hearing. As opposed to a virtual hearing, which we have oh, already yeah. covered, and that, I think this mm-hmm. is why why people uh, cared about this decision because it was one of the first ones to to discuss mm-hmm. this issue. That's not what I'm interested in, or, nor you. I think it's the second ground that that caught my eye, and that's the fact that two of the arbitrators were involved in the Frankfurt Investment Arbitration Moot.
1: Mm.
0: Which oh, sorry, sorry, yeah. <laughs> <Thank> you, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> which is
2: oh,
1: wait, so two arbitrate the two arbitrators on the panel were involved in the moot. Is, was that or a challenge? and challenge? Oh, counsel and arbitrator.
0: Uh, no, they, so, yeah, the, uh, the relationship to counsel is how okay. it, uh, it's the hook because counsel for the claimants who is also ironically counsel for respondent Germany in the bottomfall case where the tribunal was also challenged by the, like, basically this is someone who has now experience of, from both sides of challenging arbitrators under the exit system.
1: Oh, that okay. counsel,
0: Sabine Conrad... Uh, is the head of the Frankfurt Investment Arbitration Moot, which both uh-huh. Brian and I have been involved in in various capacities over the years as well. And so have been yes. a lot of people in the field, which I think is why this is interesting, because yeah. the same applies to the two arbitrators who were challenged. One, I think, was involved two or three or four years in a row, and one of them was only there for one year. but. You sit as arbitrator in these mock hearings and there's seminars generally surrounding it. And it's just like a big, it's, it's like the Viz moot, but it's for investment arbitration specifically. Yeah. So this Spain challenged this then that, you know, basically arguing that there's, there are too many connections here and it's, it's good PR for the arbitrators and they participate in the moot on the assumption that it will lead to more appointments and to prestige. And, you know, it's, it's currying favors with, lawyers and in this particular case the lawyer for one of the parties in this arbitration Oof. <laughs> Oh. i
1: was gonna say yeah it's not very different than challenging you know someone who's part of a conference then how is yeah
0: that?
1: yeah it's very similar you know i mean there's so many conferences in this field too so if you're part of a big like you know for example swedish days or <laughs> paris arbitration week or stuff like that with that i'll you know, create right an issue. That- well,
0: no, and, and this, I think we can, we can fairly say that this was never going to succeed this particular mm-hmm. challenge. Having said that, I, I can have some sympathy for that. Having been involved in, in moot court, not just the Frankfurt moot court but, uh, competition, but others like for an outsider. And I think, as we've talked about in other contexts, it, it, the standard should be like a, a neutral objective person and not a subjective arbitration insider For an outsider, the way the moot courts are set up, I can can see that it's a bit strange because you're there for like two, three, four days and you sit together as as mock arbitrators and you you talk to academics and to experts and to counsel and to students and you have cocktails and seminars and you just like co-mingle for days and then you leave the mock context and the moot context and you go back to the real world and all of a sudden you're in real life arbitrations where you're all in different capacities. Well, wait, I mean... You're basically saying that it's like a friendship test, which I don't think
2: is, I think what they're saying more is that this is gonna to lead to some sort of like commingling of interests of appointments. And so, but I, but this is what I don't understand because what is Sabine gonna do in her, con, as the organizer of the moot to grant them a benefit or saying, if you rule in my favor in this arbitration, I will appoint you in a position as a moot court judge, which yeah, is free yeah. and everyone does on their own anyway. Like, what, yeah, exactly.
1: what's
0: the benefit here? Yeah.
1: yeah, I'm bringing your prestige by, I mean, I don't know. It's. Uh...
0: Yeah, I think, so. I mean, th- I think that is the, the best version of the argument. I, I think we're all in agreement that this is not a very uh, promising challenge.
1: Yeah, it reminds me of a challenge that was brought, uh, I think about a decade ago now, uh, or a few years ago, at least. Uh, where the counsel and the arbitrator were part of the same LLM class, and I remember that one because it was uh they were from Harvard, uh, both of them, the LLM class at Harvard. So I was in. Yeah, I re- I remember that in yours, story. Or and in it, another one, not in yours. No, class. no, no, not in mine, not in my, because it was a couple, <laughs> a couple, a couple years ago, uh, and I had just freshly graduated, so it just caught my interest. But um, but it was dismissed as well. Um, so they had brought the challenge just on the fact that they were both in the same LLM class. So imagine that, you know, also like uh, from what you were saying from an external point of view, you kind of like, well, we know what happens in these LLM classes. You know, yeah. we kind of mix and mingle all around all the time. So we're really friends. But then we also know that that doesn't mean that you can't be um, impartial. Yeah, impartial, Yeah, or. Or, You know, that's, that's a good question actually, but of course, it's really hard to, to prove unconscious bias, that's yes, and
0: especially in the exit context, as we have already mentioned a few times in other episodes, the bar is so high when it's manifest lack of mm-hmm. independence right. and impartiality. And the fact that you went to school together for a while doesn't, in and of itself, obviously show that you're manifestly lack independence or impartiality,
2: yeah, and I, I yeah, on the rules, definitely, but I, I, th- I think we can all kind of like commiserate with this type of challenge and if you were on the other side and you know, if it, for example, if, you know, I was going against Saudi on a case and Joel was the arbitrator, would I bring a challenge saying like, wait well, no, because. No, because you would me. incriminate yourself.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, like,
2: but if it wasn't like, you know, if it was something, whatever, you, you know, the scenario I'm trying to create and it, it would be like, there's some intangible prejudice that I feel from this relationship, and I want to
0: articulate it in some sort of yeah, phase. I know, it, but that, it's difficult. And I think, especially in investment treaty arbitration, the world of arbitration is small. The world of investment treaty arbitration is even smaller. I think in any given investment treaty arbitration, if you went looking for it, you would find all of these like intangible connections between counsel yeah. teams and arbitrators. There's always conferences or courses or other cases or like firms overlapping. It's such a tiny world. It's impossible to to keep like completely hermetically sealed away from each other
1: but then it's also a question of disclosure right do you need to disclose that yeah that's true that's the thing because then you let people decide the parties decide if that's an issue or do you place the burden on them to find out um, the relationships right that's one of the things as well
0: that's a great point i think here just to close this off and and jump into the kai interview uh, here a funny twist on this was that gar interviewed one of the co-organizers uh, of the Frankfurt Moot, who said that this is now going straight into a future moot case. <laughs> this,
1: this so that's great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I
0: just Thanks for material. that.
1: <laughs> they also, I, I just to link it up with uh, one of the cases that they made about you guys, didn't they, right? About the podcast. Was it the same moot?
2: No, different moot.
1: No, uh, that was a different moot. But the FDI it was, uh, moot, yeah. The, oh, it was the FDI moot, right? Okay about uh, so there was one person who appeared on the podcast right was that the scenario yeah it was an arbitrator and,
0: and i think he allegedly expressed uh an opinion on an issue that was involved in the arbitration so it was it was another challenge i think that was the, the yeah. factual matrix was a challenge as an arbitrator mm-hmm. had been on the arbitration station although they screwed up our names we got some like fictionalized not screwed up it was on purpose obviously but <laughs> yeah. we got fictionalized like rock star names i think yeah It's like Elton John and Phil Collins or something. (laughs) Elton John.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I wonder who that was for. Um, Um, All right. Should we move on to Professor Dr. Kai Hobert? Please.
1: Yes. Looking forward to that one. Yes, absolutely. And then we'll have uh, a happy fun time segment on our gift giving.
0: Brian and I have uh, both worked with Kai in different capacities, and we have tried, but we have yet—we are yet to succeed—to get him on the the podcast that we co-host, the Arbitration Station. Despite having tried for a while, so we're grateful for the organizers enabling us to corner him like this and ask uh, him a few questions. Kai, of course, needs no introduction to the people attending a conference such as this, so. I think in order to make most of the half hour we have, we we thought we'd jump right into it, basically.
2: Yeah, and I actually um, it is a to no surprise of many
0: that know Professor Dr. Kai Um and
2: you can the um, Hi,
3: Brian, that's fine. Okay.
2: <laughs> there you are. I couldn't see you with the, I'm called the admin.
3: I'm masquerading as admin.
2: Okay. <laughs> um, but I mean, it comes to no surprise that we're interviewing you today as the connection between the Swedish and the Russian market, because you did spend a considerable amount of time in Russia, um, and very early on in your career. Uh, so, what drew you to Russia in the first place? When was that, and and what drew you to the to Russia in the first place?
3: Well, I think the uh, <laughs> the the simple answer is military service uh, as some of the other participants here i I spent a year in the swedish army in something called the army language school where in those days they taught you russian and nothing but Um, and when i uh, finished that um, i started working as a two leader in the soviet union this was in 1972 in those days this was practically the only way to practice your russian without actually having to live in, in Russia for a year, which didn't seem to me to be very attractive at that point. So mm-hmm. I started out in the summer of 1972 as a tour leader, taking Swedish or Scandinavian tourists by bus to Leningrad, as it then was, and to Moscow. And that I did for probably, well, until until and including 1976. So that's how it started, in a way.
2: <laughs> and but did you stay there after you moved there initially, or you had you moved back um, later on in your career?
3: Well, I mean, this this is this is a long time ago, Brian. This is in the seventies, <laughs> and no no one typically moved to to the Soviet Union in those days. So my work during the summers was I mean, this was during the summers only. Okay. When I was a student, so I was going back and forth. I mean. June through August uh, for for those years and then I was actually back in in 1980 during the Olympics as a regional manager they called it for all Scandinavian tourists oh wow and then of course later on in the 90s uh, 97 through 2000 I lived in I lived in Moscow yeah, so we can
2: talk about that briefly. Um, you were there in the 90s, as you say, working as a legal advisor, which would be the equivalent of uh, the privatization ministry, drafting legislation and regulations uh, for state-owned enterprises. Yep. And how? So how was Moscow in the 90s compared to what you saw back in the Soviet era in the 70s? Uh,
3: very different. I mean, very different indeed. I mean, those years, we're talking about basically nine. When I worked at the GK, it was, as it was called, was 91 through 93. And this was just <laughs> at the beginning really of the of the transformation. I mean, the Soviet Union by that time had ceased to exist. So we were talking about the Russian Federation, but I mean, these were still very early days in the transformation of the Russian society. So it, it was, I mean, from a purely practical point of view, it was difficult to get things done. Uh, mm. But uh, it, it was, it was, needless to say, a very interesting experience. Um, I was there working together with a group of other uh, Western experts, uh, preparing privatization legislation and preparing the whole privatization program.
2: I mean, and this seems like, on paper, the obvious connection to what led you into kind of the world of investment arbitration as it relates to uh, Russia and other CIS countries. No, is this?
3: Not really. Uh, I have to say, because <coughs> really, two other things I would say. Uh, as far as in, I mean, this is ninety-one, ninety-two, ninety-three. No one had really heard of investment treaty arbitration in those days. There were bits, obviously, but very, very few arbitrations. So the starting point for me in that field was really the Iran News Claims Tribunal, which started back in 1982, the same year as I started out in private practice, having spent four years in the Swedish courts. I started with uh, as an associate with Vetter and & Vetter, and Jelis Vetter, one of the name partners, was, of course, an old... Um, associate colleague of Gunnar Lagergren, who was then the president, the first president of the tribunal. And since that was the case, uh, many American companies came to the firm to try to figure out how Swedish arbitrators think. Um, and most of those cases uh, coming before the tribunal were, I mean, not strictly speaking, investment treaty cases, but rather, but I mean, but that with a corporation indirect. indirectly. So that was one element. And the other element was really my work prior to the privatization era on doing joint ventures in the Soviet Union. Because that is, I mean, this is back in the Gorbachev days. Uh, In 1987, they issued this Decree 49, which made it possible for the first time since the 1920s for foreign direct investment in, in the Soviet Union. And I was very much involved in that. And as part of that work, many, many foreign investors, of course, started to ask the Russians about, well, what about these investment protection treaties? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and the, the typical answer then was, well, you know, we don't, you don't need that. You can trust them. <laughs> and, uh, and eventually, they understood that they, they did need to get those bits in place. And the first bits, Soviet bits came around that time 88 89 so that's how I got involved in the Russian side of investment treaty protection really
0: if we stay with your role in, in private practice but but move back to the the mid-1990s again I think you also interacted with a man who's now the president of the Russian Federation but at the time I think was deputy Prime Minister sorry the deputy mayor of st. Petersburg yeah. in, what, in what way did you interact with him
3: well uh that was another of these joint ventures. Um, two Swedish companies, Dreasel uh, was a travel agent, and Sia, the construction company, in the uh, late 80s entered into a joint venture with Intourist, which was then the, the travel agency in the Soviet Union, uh, to operate the Grand Hotel Europe, as it's now called, in St. Petersburg. Europeiska, which many of our Russian friends know very well. Um, For for different reasons, the Swedish parties (coughs) wanted to withdraw from that joint venture. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, so did the Entourist. So the question arose, who is going to take the role, the place in this joint venture of the Entourist? And lo and behold, the uh, officials of Saint Petersburg or Leningrad in those days uh, were very interested, and the person in charge of foreign investment in those days in Saint Petersburg was Vladimir Putin. So I actually negotiated with him for, uh, I would say, probably t- two years or so. Uh, he wow. him representing the interests of the city, then, and then I representing the interests of the Swedish parties.
2: Hello. How was that negotiation, if you don't mind <laughs> lifting well, the veil
3: a bit? I mean, not not as exciting as one would have thought, perhaps. I mean, given what, I mean, what he is, where he has ended up, so to speak. But in in those days, he was deputy mayor, uh, and the mayor was Sobchak, who was then a, a very, you know, well known and a hotshot politician in Russia. So I would say that, uh, without being uh, disrespectful, I think. Putin was really a subject's errand boy. Uh, mm. So, I mean, and he was a tough negotiator as one would have expected. I mean, he represented his client, I represented my client. Um, eventually a deal was struck, uh, which meant that a Swiss German company, Kempinski, took over the operation of the hotel uh, and the city of St. Petersburg, uh, Took over the fifty percent part of the joint venture that had belonged to Intourist.
0: Apparently, that's, some sort of a relation was was established because you also translated Vladimir Putin's <laughs> doctoral dissertation into into English. Uh, uh, mean, some years you know, later, that,
3: that's taking it a bit too far, I think. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I did I did translate his his uh, dissertation, but that's. Um, that's a completely different story, quite frankly. I mean, uh, the reason, well, the the background is this, I worked um, representing Khodorkovsky in in the first criminal trial in Moscow. I mean, working with Russian lawyers and other non Russian lawyers in preparing different aspects of that case. And in so doing, we came across references to a dissertation that Putin supposedly had written. Um, it was in Russian, obviously, so we tried to get copies of this by asking at the St. Petersburg University, at the library and so on and so forth. But in, 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 I have to say, a typical Russian way, the answer was Nieto. No, you can't find it. There is no such dissertation. Uh, but we managed to get a copy of it anyway, for, for different sources. So um, we used that in, in in preparing for those trials. And I started referring to that in giving presentations and lectures. I started to refer to that dissertation to non-speaking Russians, as uh, so or non-speaking lawyers, um, uh, non-Russian-speaking lawyers, I should say, and and. Uh, it turned out there was an interest to try to get to, to try to get an English version of that dissertation. So uh, at the beginning of August, I don't remember which year that was, but I basically wrote him a letter to the president, uh, asking him for permission to translate his dissertation. I had no hope of getting an answer. Uh, I would probably have translated it anyway. Um, But lo and behold, eight eight days later, I got a letter from Mita Piskov, his spokesperson already in those days, saying, yes, the president is grateful for your interest in his dissertation, and please go ahead and translate it, which I did. And I even sent him a copy of the translation, but uh, I haven't heard from him since. (laughs) (laughs) He's still mad about the negotiation, I'm sure. Maybe, maybe. (laughs) Um, um, I, I, just to finish that one, I think one lesson to one takeaway from from that particular dissertation, I think, is that uh, it was about the development of Russian economy in the northeastern northwestern part of Russia, uh, the Nizhny Oblast, and the two messages: first, natural resources are very important. The state has to be in control over the development of the natural resources. And that's why, and that is, as we know, is what has happened with the oil and gas sector in Russia. Now we have one oil company, Rosneft, and one gas company, Gazprom. Uh, in the early 90s, as a, as a result of privatization, we had about a dozen oil companies. Very few of them exist today. So the takeaway is really this. When Putin says something, you better listen. <laughs> <laughs> very, very much so. You, you mentioned non-Russian-speaking
0: lawyers, Kai, and I think that some of the... Uh, well, I should say this, the, what you have told us so far, of course, all builds upon the assumption that you spoke Russian as Hmm. a non-Russian lawyer, which which opened doors to you. I think the first question you ever asked me when the first time we met when I wanted to apply for a PhD was, do you speak Russian? To which I had to, of course, admit that I did not. It used to be more common, I think. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Mm. It used to be more common in in Sweden that that, uh, lawyers spoke Russian. Uh, But then when we're having this whole seminar is obviously in English and now we all speak English instead. How do you feel about the fact that it's not as common Anymore, and what are your thoughts on, on Swedish lawyers learning Russian, and conversely, perhaps Russian lawyers learning Swedish? Of which there are a few examples, but it's increasingly rare.
3: Well, I, I think it's uh, a bit of a sad story because, um, I mean, it, it, if we talk about the international arbitration, needless to say, the lingua franca, as it were, is English. So, if you want to be active in this field, you need to master the English language for sure. But this, you know, speaking for myself, uh, I could not have done what I've done had I not, you know, known Russian. And it clearly helps a lot if you want to be involved in <coughs> <coughs> sorry, this part of the world. And by that I mean the former Soviet Union, not only the Russian Federation, but also the former republics. I mean, to know the language is of enormous help. Needless to say, you don't necessarily need to, you know, speak it fluently, but just to be able to read and understand, I think, is, is uh, very important. Um, and when it comes to you know, Russian court cases and, and uh, legislative materials, not a lot of it is in English. So, I mean, from a Western lawyer's point of view, who want to be become involved in, in in this part of the world, or that part of the world, uh, I think Russia is is quite important. Um, as far as Sweden is concerned, and I think uh, many other countries in Western Europe too. Um, well, to exaggerate a bit, and you know, once the Berlin Wall was down, uh, you know, Russia and Russian status was out the window, because we're not not going to have any problems with the Russians anymore. It'd be a bit, uh, uh, maybe disrespectful, but. Uh, And I think now, I mean, the interest is slowly but surely uh, coming back. Uh, And I think it's, uh, for many, many reasons, I think, certainly for us in in Scandinavia, it should be uh, a lot more interest to understand what's going on in in Russia. Uh, And part of that is knowing the language, I think, and the culture and the history.
2: To follow up on that, because you are... It sounds like what you're saying is that there is more to be done uh, in the Swedish community, specifically in the arbitration community in Sweden, to develop a closer connection with Russia, whether it be by language or holding these conferences. How do you see the relationship now compared to what it was you know, 20 years ago uh, but between Sweden and Russia? And do you think the Swedish arbitration community is doing enough or should do more? And if they can do more, what
3: could, could they do? Well, I think if we if we look at the situation, let's say twenty years ago, it's uh, well. I mean, that's two thousand. It's not, you know, it's not that long ago, really. Um, <laughs> yeah. um it feels not that long ago.
0: Well, I we, think we, we can all agree. I think that it's uh, nineteen eighty is about twenty years ago. That's yeah, not reasonable. <laughs> Yeah.
3: No, but I mean Stockholm. If we start there, Stockholm has the center for east-west arbitration, I think, has clearly lost out to other, uh, you know, potential seats of arbitration. London, for example. Um, and that is, I think, partly a consequence of um, the development in Russia. Uh, but also, I think, a consequence of the fact that we, in my view, in Sweden, we are not done enough to try to, you know, preserve our Uh, position in in that race, if you will, Uh, and I still think that um, much more can actually be done to try to improve the situation from from a Stockholm perspective. One thing that can be done, uh, as, as both of you know, I've said many times, I mean, Swedish lawyers need to be much more involved in what's going on in the former Soviet Union. For example, by participating in in seminars and, you know, visiting clients, visiting friends, so on and so forth. I mean, there is nothing that can really replace personal contact. So by, you know, being more often in in the former Soviet Union and as the politicians do press flesh, I mean, that's what counts at the end of the day. But um, just to give you a rather sad example. I mean, I think it was last year, was it? Yes, last year. I mean, um, as as some of you know, many of you know, I think there is this East European arbitration jamboree in Minsk, uh, last year and the year before last year. But last year, I was the only Swedish lawyer there, together with Ginta. And we had, I mean, I don't know how many, but lots of Russian lawyers, Ukrainian lawyers, uh, Belarusian lawyers, and so on and so forth. I mean, we, we cannot miss up on those opportunities, I think. So that's one one problematic aspect, I think, of the situation. But the other one is also something that Alexander Moralov mentioned. I don't know if he's still here. Um, but the arbitration, as he put them, very well. I mean, the so-called arbitration reforms in Russia has transformed, I think, international arbitration in Russia in such a way that it makes it a bit more difficult for us in Stockholm and for for others too, to engage in a serious and professional way with developing and and developing together international arbitration.
2: When you uh, served as chairman of the SEC board, uh, obviously the SEC is pivotal in making these connections and developing these links between Sweden and other countries, especially Russia, considering that a lot of contracts, older contracts in the former Soviet Union had, you know, uh, Swedish law um, or the SEC as the institution. Um, Did you uh, take any active measures while a chairman of the SEC board to try and increase these ties? Or did you see any any movement from the inside that you can tell us about the connection between the two countries?
3: No, I mean, even before I was chairman, Brian, I, I was a member of the board for 18 years. Um, so I've, I've been quite involved in, in most of the development, I would say, between Russia and Stockholm, and then uh, Sweden and, and the Ukraine. No, but we, we have had and we have tried to organize seminars of different kinds uh, with Russian entities or with the uh, Chamber of Commerce in Russia. Um, but I, again, you know, there is much more that can be done,
2: mm-hmm.
3: quite frankly. And the world changes, need to say. So we, we, I mean, the Swedish arbitration community, we have to change with it. Uh, one area, for example, that, that I think is quite uh, important is to try to capitalize on the Belt and Road Initiative, because a lot of what the Chinese are doing, they are doing in the former republics, uh, the projects, and they have to sign contracts, and the contracts will have to have arbitration clauses, and that's, you know, an area where we, I think, could do much more, to, you know, market the advantages of Stockholm, for example, but it's all all a matter of. You know, people, individuals doing things. Uh, mm. I mean, you ha- you need to carve up the sleeves. It's you can't do this at your desk. You can't do it by sending emails. But I mean, you need to meet people and talk to people and convince people.
0: On that note, uh, the the people note and the the culture note, which of course goes beyond the world of arbitration. Beyond the preference for for hard liquor, what do you think are the the cultural features that that unite Sweden and Russia? You've obviously been and lived in Russia. What has made you feel at home in Russia? And and, and conversely, what do you emphasize about Sweden and trying to make Russians feel that they are welcome and they will like Sweden?
3: Well, difficult question, Jule. I mean, I think we are, uh, if you talk about Swedes and Russians in general terms of which is always dangerous and difficult. Um, I, th- I think there are many similarities where we're essentially uh, uh, both of us are, are part of Europe and we share common European tradition and values, I think, to a large extent. But having said that, you know, we're also different. And that's a, that's a mistake that many I think businessmen do coming to Russia and and doing business and they sort of assume that things are done in Russia the way they're done at home. And that the Russian businessmen think the same way as Swedish businessmen do. But that's not true. I mean, not always true. Sometimes it's true. Um, So I think we, uh, uh, speaking for myself, uh, I think I've always felt at home in a way in, in Moscow and in St. Petersburg, where I spend most of my time. Uh, but I mean, there are differences. Uh, but there, for, again, from my perspective, there are, those differences are not you know, insurmountable in any way. You just need to be aware of them.
0: But what are they? I, I apologize for forcing you to take with the, with the broadest <laughs> branches available, but what are some of the cultural differences in business and, and legal terms?
3: Well, I mean, if you talk about individuals, I mean, it's really not meaningful, you because, I mean, you and I are different, uh, Brian and I are different. Uh, so, I mean, there is just not one kind of Russian, obviously, they're all individuals. Uh, so, I think that's, that's a rather slippery slope to, to, you know, get involved in. But in, in terms of uh, doing business, I think, and, and on the legal side, Uh, generally speaking, I think that many Russian businessmen are more interested in making a quick buck uh, than building a business. Uh, Many, there are not so many foreign investments or Swedish investments in Russia nowadays, but in the 90s, for example, in the early 2000s, many Swedish businessmen, went to russia because they wanted to build a business of sorts to tap the enormous russian market i mean it's, it's the, you know it's the biggest country in europe uh and obviously the largest country in the world as far as territory is concerned so i think this different time horizon is one thing that uh is still a difference between russian and swedish businessmen. i think Um, Also, when we come to legal aspects, I mean, Russians are, in my experience, typically, uh, a lot more formalistic, and if you will bureaucratic, uh, than Swedish businessmen are. Again, not all of them, but, if you're looking for general traits, I think that is one of them. Um, And it takes, uh, this is still, I mean, even in even in uh, in private Russian companies, you have a hierarchy of decision making, which you don't see in Swedish companies. I mean, still in in Russian companies, nothing gets done basically unless the general director, the general director, has signed the document, and he might be on the Black Sea or skiing in Austria, whatever. I mean, nothing happens. Uh, So in Sweden, it's, I mean, as all of you know, I mean, it's a much more delegated structure typically. So these things um, differ. And I think uh, based on all my years and the decades working in that country, um, one mistake that Swedish, or not only Swedish, but Western businessmen make still is to assume that, you know, things are dealt the same way as they're done at home. And they therefore make a lot of mistakes and lose a lot of money. You have to do your homework, number one, two, number two, you have to be there. I mean, you, you, you can't, you know, remote control business in Russia it doesn't work.
2: And do you think that leads into kind of advocacy styles between these, you know, if you're a Swedish uh, law firm, for example, and you're going to uh, go into an arbitration with, let's say even three arbitrators, would you say that the, or, you know, and you flip that scenario on its head and you're a Russian uh, counsel pleading in front of a Swedish arbitrator, do you think that the advocacy styles would, that you would note a difference in those advocacy styles or um, in the way they go through legal interpretation?
3: Uh, not necessarily in advocacy styles i would say uh, I, I mean the big difference there i think is that still many russian lawyers are not quite used to uh, arguing cases the way we are used to in europe i mean uh, it, it's changing obviously uh mm-hmm. you have many really good russian young russian lawyers doing this so as far as advocacy style i'm not sure that it sort of spills over, but maybe more as far as the actual substantive arguments are concerned. Mm -hmm. Because Russian law is still, uh, in my view, uh, is still focusing much too much on formalities when it comes to interpretation of contracts and other things, to an extent which uh, will not, I think, typically convince a non-Russian arbitrator terribly much. Right. I mean, as as some of you know, one of the or two standard objections you see in many many arbitrations coming from a Russian respondent is a this 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 contract was signed by an unauthorized person, i.e. not the general director. Two, it is forged. Uh, I mean, they may well be correct, but in most cases they are not, and I think to try to you know, hammer on those issues ad nauseum in front of a of a tribunal consisting of three non-Russian lawyers, I think is not a, a recipe for success. So, in that sense, these legal cultural differences could play a role in 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 arbitrations. Yes.
0: One of the problems with the, the 2020 style of conferencing is that we have no moderator glancing at us angrily because we're running over time. So up <laughs> some minutes, yeah. <laughs> How are we, Sharon on my count We're about uh, at about a half an hour. How are we doing on time?
3: Yes, uh, Joel. Actually, I was trying to glance uh, through text messages that oh. have been ignored. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so uh, uh, yeah, if uh, if you guys could wrap up, uh, that would be great, and we could. Uh, um, move on to the closing remarks.
0: Then that's what we will do. Thank you, Shreen. Thank you very much, Kai. This has been very educational. Very nice to talk to you.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kai.
1: All right. So our last segment last year about gift giving was... uh, not super exciting if I remember, we just ended up like giving recommendations to buy mugs and t shirts and stuff like that. <laughs> so this year we're all locked up at home, we've got nothing else to do than just sit next to a cozy fire or your radiator or whatever. Um, <laughs> so what are your recommendations for gifts this year for our um nerdy, um, amazing, not nerdy oh, audience in arbitration?
0: Well, amazing and early is the same thing. Oh, right. I'm sure <laughs> it is, Joel. <laughs> I'm, sure it is. I'm sure
2: it is the same. <laughs> um, Joel, do you want to start or do you want me to throw some
0: out? Oh, uh, uh, I can start because m- mine uh, will not be the best ones. So I'll, I'll save yours for later. <laughs> oh, I'll, come I'll, I'll on. I want to run something by Sadia and see if this is true, because this is the, the, something that, that is very commonly said in Sweden about Swedish lawyers and Swedish business people in general. And it is that uh, Swedes aren't interested in culture and educated at all. And that means that they're really boring people to like sit next to at conferences or at (laughs) dinners. And it is usually contrasted with French lawyers or French business people who, it is said in Sweden, read a lot and like enjoy opera and classical music and there's like has this scholarly traditions so even if you're a business person you're expected to know the french canon and you're expected to be interested in you know, food and wine and world affairs and whatnot is this true
1: well i can talk to you about the french but i don't know about the swedish um... yeah, it's
0: absolutely true for the swedes i'm thinking is it true that the french have a slightly wider horizon and if so where do the americans fall on this spectrum brian question one B.
1: Yeah, the French there's no one dinner that goes uh whether it's with friends or family or whatever that that, that where you don't have at least one reference of a philosopher, a sociologist or some <laughs> politics and then if somebody angry like leaves leaves the table being angry and you know because his views are not shared by somebody else on the table. Oh, and that's, I love uh, this. Yeah. So it's very French drama. So brooding, yes, yeah. It's very very cliché but it happens all the time here. I'm so, so happy yeah.
0: when the, the
1: prejudice
0: <laughs> is, is confirmed. It always is, isn't it?
2: You, wanna, you ready to sit next to American at a dinner party?
0: Where yeah. are you
2: from? Oh, is that right? I have three friends from there. Oh, it must be really snowy. Oh, wow. Here's a picture of my child.
1: <laughs> oh, my God, you're yep. from London. You're so lucky.
0: <laughs> Joel, are you from Switzerland? it's like oh no that's that's a different country oh, is good. thank you that you have basically <laughs> queued up my my gifts because this year i am departing and i'm gonna suggest a few novels because i Perfect. think we should all read more yeah. novels in 2020 and probably let's be honest 2021 as well it's a mm-hmm. good time to read up yeah. i've been reading more fiction than i ever have before wow. And I have a few really good ones that I've read this year that I wanna share with people on the assumption that arbitration lawyers are not like Swedish lawyers, but more like French lawyers who have their (laughs) favorite philosophers and novelists.
1: Let's see, let's see what your selection is, because we are very judgmental the French too. So when somebody makes a book's recommendation, we're like no,
0: this is unfortunately it's pretty Anglo centric this. Uh, Let's see. Unfortunately, I'm afraid I haven't really thought this through in terms of representation or or cultural whatever. It's it's just th- things I have read that I like that I think other people should also read because they might also like it. First is a book called Duck's Newberry Port by Lucy Ellman, which got a lot of attention. I think maybe it came out this year. I read it earlier this year. It's like a thousand pages long. It is essentially a one sentence monologue in the, in the head of uh, an American housewife in like, Ohio. Wow, wait, the whole book. Yeah, it's. I think there's that one or great. two periods yeah. in one. Yeah, that's it, probably. It is really very good. It's strange, but it's it's poetic, and it's really fast in tempo, and it's like Trump's America told in one book, in, in, in one sentence, essentially.
1: In one sentence,
0: wow. It's kind of a project. It's like reading Proust or James Joyce. You wouldn't do it normally, but now, you know, who are we kidding? We have we have time to read these things.
1: What, you wouldn't read Pus? wait, 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 wait. Just wait a second, put a pin in here. You wouldn't read Pus, normally, here please.
0: Here's the front. Here's
1: the front. And <laughs> yeah. and you're putting Pus to the same like, you know, um, thing as, as James Joyce. Like Proust is such a pleasure to read. What are you talking Get about? Table, uh, Get up from the table, Sadia.
0: Get up from the table. Yeah, exactly. Storm out <laughs> from the Christmas dinner. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I mean, I agree. But I, I am like most educated people in the world, I think I have tried to read Proust and then I put it back in a box saying I'll read at some other point. And I have the same relationship to James Joyce and Moby Dick, you know, all these ambitious traditional novels that you're really supposed to have read, especially maybe if you're French. I haven't. I think this is like a modern version of that, although it's, it's like a joy to read in, in, a, in a way that I think differs from many of the, the classics already mentioned. Wow. Then I've read something uh, that I, I'm just about to finish, basically, a novel called Girl, Woman, Other, which you may have seen if you've been out in bookstores when the bookstores have been opened in London. Uh, it's by Bernadine Evaristo, and it is really about the UK and London and being a woman in UK, in London, particularly being queer or a woman of color in London, it's told through, I think it's like 12, 14, 16 different characters who sort of overlap. Are you still with us, Sadia? I lost you on the video.
1: Uh, I am. I'm yeah. here. I mean, sorry, good. I was just looking at something. Sorry about that. This
0: <laughs> is like a, When I've had remote arbitrations, you know, you have to always keep an eye on the screens to make sure all three arbitrators are present. Because if they drop out, you have to stop the record. And David Kastan has to pause True. the transcript. <laughs> no,
1: no, I was looking at your, so that looks like a really good book. So is that, did that came out recently as well?
0: I think, yeah, I think it might be from last year, or maybe even also this year. I, I haven't obviously, as always, done my research on these things. I just jotted them down because I've read them and enjoyed them. Uh, so that girl, Amazing. another I, I can strongly recommend, and then finally a book called *Crossing to Safety*. And now I'm returning more to American white men and not so much to women of color. It's <laughs> another very, very nice novel about essentially two couples who meet in like the 1930s in the US, and the husbands are both lecturers in, in English literature, and then we follow their friendship throughout the 20th century. And it's basically about mm-hmm. getting old. And friendships getting old. This is your dream, Joel. Yes, I know. This is so. <laughs> I, I realize this is on brand, but. like
2: wonderful friendships with other academics. Yes, <laughs> and getting old,
0: which is something that I take pleasure in. That's true. Do you do you read reviews for these books, or recommendations, or how do you come across these books? I have a running list of books I want to read, uh, and usually uh-huh. it comes from recommendations from friends or from from things I read and and magazines or newspapers. I also Actually, I, I'm pretty active at Goodreads, which is a forum online. Yeah. Where you yeah. could just like basically check books you've read and, and forums and discussions. And once you've started checking books you've read, the algorithm, you know, like Amazon, it just tells you like based on this 50 books that you've read yeah. like maybe you want to read this and this and this. Oh, that's good. Like, so that like Netflix. Into- yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But that's, but it makes you feel good though. Like I, I watch a lot. Or of- it makes <laughs> you feel awful. You're just like, <laughs> just
2: like wait a second. I looked at one picture book, okay? Just one.
0: <laughs> and I just want to just for the record also make clear that I watched a lot of reality TV in 2020. It's not like I've been reading novels exclusively. I've done a lot of lowbrow stuff as well just to get that on the transcript. No one's above it.
1: Yeah, I feel Joel's like, I'm the Swedish and I know you think I'm not cultured. So here's my list of cultured books. Exactly. and uh, Yeah.
0: Okay, the bar has been set. The bar has been set. What are your gift suggestions?
1: No, but this is really great. Uh, just before we go into into your selection, Brian, I just want to say, I think the book stuff is really great. We actually set up a book club in the firm. Oh, uh, oh. In the firm and with our uh, best friends, because uh, we have a best friend network of continental firms, um, in the office right and and we would always run into each other and we stopped doing that for the last year almost so oh, we're like yeah. how can we connect um, you know differently than a webinar or all these legal discussions so we set up a book club and I, I thought this is great so everyone gives an idea and then we we had our first meeting the other day and I loved it oh, it's really oh, great
0: that, yeah that's actually that's a good Christmas gift start a book club with yeah. I have one with friends that I've had for like eleven years, I think people in Sweden, we've been reading we, we probably read a hundred books at this point, but but now we're also because I'm stuck here in the restaurant in Sweden. we haven't met for a long time either but that's an, that's an amazing thing to do and' just parentheses what's going on with our arbitration book club that we agreed to to do this season? Is that my fault <laughs> Well, this is basically a an
2: in, in a, a kickstart to that.
1: Yeah, I all this
2: talk of books.
1: I really want us to do an arbitration book club. I think there's plenty out there to discuss, but I'll let Brian give his views on his gifts, and then maybe I can give a few ideas. Okay,
2: I have one one that, or I have a, a one category that is just you know a, for fun and actually quite practical, and then one to be the, to join you in your pseudo intellectualism <laughs> debate here. Uh, so I think when I when we had the interview with David Kast and he brought up something which was quite interesting, and which I agree with him. And he saw our microphones and was like, "Oh, you're using the Blue Yeti. Uh, that's really great that you have a good microphone because when I'm having, you know, when I'm taking down and transcribing what's going on in a hearing, some of these arbitration practitioners have no equipment, and it's hard to hear them, and they cut out. And um, so I think being clear and being able to communicate effectively over a Zoom for a hearing or for a conference or for, for you know a client is actually quite useful, and I think people should start investing in it. Um, mm-hmm. So we here, here. use the we use the Blue Yeti microphone, but there is a much cheaper microphone. For example, a Blue Snowball USB microphone, which you can get on Amazon. It's only seventy dollars or what fifty quid um, to get you a better sound, which I think a lot of people would really appreciate. Um, You can also get, if you're really into it, you can get a a 25 inch flexible jaw, long arm swivel clamp to put a camera on so that you see that you are presented front and center and from a, a bit from above and that you have the right background in place. I do not have that. And you always see like my overhead lamp behind my head and it doesn't look very professional.
0: You can see your laundry rack right now. Exactly.
2: (laughs) Um, And then you can get a ring light if you're really from Los Angeles and you want to look like your absolute best when you're- um, You don't have the the
0: luxury of your morning lights in your home office. (laughs) These are really, really good, Brian. And actually it's not just arbitrations, it's conferences and things like this as well. We are all living basically our lives online and interacting professionally online yes. all the time. It's a small investment to, and a service to the people with whom you're interacting. <laughs> exactly.
2: We, when we mm. interviewed Kai, not only was he perfectly dressed, but his camera angle was perfect. He, it was centered. It was his thousands of books behind him. I was like, whoever designed this? Was like, this is <laughs> it's pretty cool. Done.
1: Yeah. Okay.
2: Now to be pseudo-intellectual. I found um, a book that I thought was interesting for the both of you. Um, it's called the last waltz of the of nations. And it's a translation of a French book, um, by Joseph Mathias Gerard de Reneval. And it is basically a, um, it's, so it was originally in French and it was called like, it was called the institutions and it's basically a, um, synopsis of, the law of nations and the rule of law, but told from ah. the perspective of a French diplomat. Um, so kind but this of is his... like a billion years ago, right? It's not the recent. Correct. It was only translated into English recently in, uh, about, okay. in like 2019. So it was originally in French and then they translated into Spanish and they've had this for a while, but now it's finally translated into English. So I thought that would be, Joel, because you like to get into the history of international law, and Sadia, because it's a French diplomat, so there you go. <laughs> yeah, of course
1: it's French, so I'm going to read it. That's amazing, yeah. And then same. one more
2: book, and then I'll pass it on to you, Sadia, is um, the legal, it's called Legal Reasoning Across Commercial Disputes, and I thought Damien Charlatan would, would like this type of of a book it's comparing judicial and arbitral analysis so it's a qualitative but also a quantitative study um, about the type of arguments that are put forward to arbit to judges and arbitrators Um, and it's basically to improve not only counsel's ability to carry out and present legal arguments and submissions but also for um, judges and arbitrators to see how other people decided certain disputes
0: I thought that would. I read about this. This is Stacy strong. It's coming out now, like in January, I think. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's going to be a very helpful, helpful one uh, on our shelves. Yeah. These are all great guys. These are, uh, I'm taking notes as you guys are (laughs) saying this. This Yeah. I am as well. We should probably add
0: all of these in the, in the episode notes for. Yeah, exactly. Sure.
1: I'm just going to maybe give a few notes on uh, just recent uh, acquisitions that I have made uh, during this time of purchasing books. So I'm not going to be the French intellectual talking about philosophy and sociology. I'm I left that role to Joel for that uh, episode. <laughs> I'm going to be the boring nerdy um, arbitration, you know, hardcore fan. So I can not, not mention <laughs> the um, new JP book. J.P. being Jan Paulson. Oh. Uh, <laughs> our, our, uh, yes, so he came out a new book on the Cambridge, uh, at Cambridge University Press, The Unruly Notion of um, Abuse of right. Um, and uh, he uh, there was also a Kaplan lecture on this. Um, so I'm not going to go into much detail about this, but it's a very interesting um, take on the notion of abuse of rights. And he's done a very good study of uh, how a lot of arbitrators refer to that concept. And he's been very skeptical about whether or not there is actually such a theory. Um, and, uh, you know, referring to a lot of different, um, you know, uh, scholars, French ones being an example. Uh, Swedish
0: ones, actually. He, Swedish I, I ones I as helped well. helped him a few years ago when he was doing comparative research and digging through this, the Swedish background of this and the the notion doesn't really exist in sweden but there are scholars who say that maybe it does did, did you see the captain lecture sadia i have it on my list to do it over holidays
1: yeah i did it's very interesting it's very good uh, i thought it was very good and uh, there's actually a write-up by gar also on it so mm. i thought it was uh i i really enjoyed his take on this so i really recommend people um I'm not being paid by by Ian Poulton or anything, but I think it's a good, it's a good read. Um, there's also another one that I've mentioned uh, previously, which is by no means a new book. Uh, I think it came out a couple of years ago now, but I read it again recently and I really enjoyed it is uh, NPRs Roberts is International Law International. And I think you've mm. spoken about it before, Jill, as well, but I think it's worth mentioning. We did mention it yes. during the podcast. Yeah,
0: um, yeah, yeah, we can mention it every podcast episode, no problem. Yeah. Mm.
1: I think it's excellent. It really is. And um, it's really worth merging now. And then finally, there's another one that's just about to come out. It hasn't come out yet. It's Identity and Diversity on the International Bench oh, by Freya no. Bates. Yeah. And this one, I think, is going to be a big one that everybody should read, really. And I'm looking forward to having a copy myself. Mm. Um, not least because, um, and here I'm just going to, Divergent talking about something that just happened recently. But there's a lot of discussion about, you know, um, well, gender equality and diversity or inclusion on uh, the bench and in arbitration as well uh, with the pledge and everything. And recently, the European Commission actually just said that they were adhering to the pledge uh, when they were asking... called for applications for people to apply to their roster of arbitrators for their um, newly established uh, court (laughs) or tribunal, whatever it's going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought that was really interesting because they mentioned uh, equal uh, gender equality. But that's it. <laughs> I'm going to be very, you know, cynical about this. I think it's a great leap. It's really great that they're mentioning this. Um, but the reason why we should read that book is maybe to understand that it's uh, much more, we need much more than just gender equality. And we need to te- you know, speak in, in terms of inclusion and diversity uh, from all fronts. I think it's much more than gender equality. Please let's move forward to this, and not just speak about gender equality, guys. Um, I think I, I made that plea last year as well. I think it's much, much yes. deeper than that. Let's talk about diversity with a huge D or in fact, I like the word inclusion more than diversity, to be honest, which um, has this connotation of your including people um, right. in the discourse, as opposed to just have a wide number or, you know, of, of different backgrounds and different cultures. Um, so let let's see. So these are my my three kind of books. Um, there's so many others, but I think these are these are a good one. I also noticed that there's a new Shurer that came out. I always refer to the Shurer as the Bible, uh, <laughs> which is the interpretation of the Exit Convention. But now there's a new book that came out on principles, substantive right. principles. So check it's it subs- out. Oh. Substantive, yeah 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 i got that one as well so i start reading that one so that's a good one as well to have in your library Pack in the shelves uh, exactly exactly i'm using all my um <laughs> I book my, my book allowance uh, i'm not using my travel allowance so i'm using my <laughs> book allowance now that's yeah,
0: how we exactly. travel now that's the exactly way we travel, that's travel through minds
1: <laughs> Travel to exactly through books. That's a great way of doing it. But uh, but I like this, a mix of fiction, a mix of, you know, arbitration books, a, a mix of, you know, IT suggestions from brilliant Brian, uh, which we <laughs> all need. This we is do. great. Just so much better than last year, guys. I know. We <laughs>
3: are. I yeah. agree.
0: Well, happy holidays. Happy holidays, guys. Have you uh, heard about iReporter? No. What?
1: What? What <laughs> happened? That?
0: No, it's it's our sponsor.
1: Oh, Sadia. oh my goodness! Of course.
0: <laughs> I thought it was a abbreviation.
2: I'm so
1: sorry, Luke. I'm just just like <laughs> I read you all the time, and it's just become a given for me. Yeah, know? we
0: should have done a holiday special with our favorite pieces from I Reporter's coverage from from 2020. But uh, another year, another episode. We could do a New Year episode.
1: Yeah, I was going to say get a subscription for your loved ones to i a Reporter for a yeah. gift. Actually, not
0: a bad idea. Yeah. family favorite (laughs) just wanted to mention that before we go off here i also want to mention what we're doing when we come back again which we haven't really figured out but we will do something on space arbitration
2: very excited about that
0: i think we'll do something on parental leave working in the world of arbitration we might do the book club which we've been sort of kicking down the road now for a year and a half or so we will what else do we have yes. lined up? That's pretty much it right now. Most other things I, are still up in the air. I think
1: exciting interviews upcoming as well. We're yes. still going to go on with our exciting interviews. And yeah, uh, maybe some new surprises. Let's see.
0: All right. Is that it for this remarkable, amazing year of 2020, which we started <laughs> in Sadia's office in like January, recording in good mood with I ambitious know. plans?
2: May the door hit it on the butt on the way out. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> let's hope for better times guys
2: all right take care you guys yeah take care and stay safe
1: bye everyone